Welcome to the Burial Plot Horror Podcast with Brenda Tolian and Joy Yaley. Welcome to the Burial Plot, where we bring you dark fiction and those who conjure it into existence. I'm Joy Yaley, and I'm here with my co-host, Brenda Tolian. Brenda, how are you doing? How is the weather down in New Orleans today? Um, it's a little bit cooler, like 80s, upper 80s, but it still has um, swamp yass. <laughs> <laughs> when you step outside, you will be, you'll be swampy in all the places. So, yeah. We don't have that in Colorado, as you're well aware. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, it's, it's a big change. Um, a good change. A good change. No, I love it, but I don't love the swamp. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I like New Orleans a lot, but I don't know if I could live there. It's too, too hot for me. And, and big cities, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a big city scaredy cat. So, <laughs> yeah. So I haven't seen you for a bit because we've both been busy and you were moving. But um, back in May, you and I were both supposed to meet up and do a uh, reading at Book Bar here in Denver with our guest today. A uh, big snowstorm kept you home and mm -hmm. COVID waylaid me and kept me home. And eventually the only one standing was our, our guest. <laughs> so kudos to him. <laughs> I was very disappointed in having to miss the reading. I was so looking forward to it. But we're so happy to have him here with us on The Burial Plot today. Our guest today is author John Basoff. He's the author of nine novels. His mountain gothic novel, Corrosion, has been translated into French and German and was nominated for the Grand Prix de Littérature Policière, France's biggest crime fiction award. His psycho-noir novel, The Disabled, Disassembled Man, has been adopted to the big screen with a filming date set to begin within the next hundred years. He also wrote the screenplay for Bizarre Love Triangle, which was named semi-finalist at the New York Cinematography Awards and a finalist at the Seattle Film Festival for Best Short Film. His work has been featured several times in New York Magazine and has garnered the attention of fellow authors such as Craig Johnson, the author of the Longmire series, S.A. Cosby, the author of Razorblade Tears, and Paul Tremblay, author of A Head Full of Ghosts and many others. For his day job, John teaches high school English, where he is known by students and faculty alike as the deranged writer today. He is a connoisseur of tequila, hot sauces, psychobilly psycho music, and flea bag motels. His latest novel, Beneath Crew Waters, from Blackstone Publishing, is available now. John, it is so good to finally chat with you. Welcome to the Barrett. Yeah, it's great to be here, and nice job on that French pronunciation. Why, thank you. I am Canadian. <laughs> I was, I was, did I carry on a conversation in French? No, no, I could not. No, I could not. I've kind of forgotten most of it. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the awards. That's amazing. I love it. Thank you. Now, Beneath Cruel Waters, which is your latest novel, is your ninth published novel, which that's an amazing track record. Every, I mean, it's difficult to put one novel out, let alone nine. Congratulations. Very proud of that. Um, do you find that over the course of writing that certain themes or subjects keep reappearing or um, just keep rehashing in your work? Does that happen to you? That happens to me. So I'm always curious about that. 
Yeah, it does. I, I, in a lot of ways, I feel like I've been trying to write the same novel over and over and over again, just in very different ways. Uh, but what I've noticed consciously or unconsciously is uh, religious extremism kind of appears over and over in my, in my work. Um, memory or faulty memory appears a lot. Uh, violence. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I tend to try to do, I guess this is different than themes, but I try to do a lot of stuff with, with interesting uh, narrators, especially the ones that I've done in first person, a lot of unreliable narrators and so forth. But I guess we're all unreliable. So that goes without saying, but yeah, I, th th those themes, no matter what kind of keep, keep reappearing in my, in my works. Yeah, I get that. I have similar reoccurring themes and sometimes I'm not sure why they keep reoccurring and other times I absolutely know why. <laughs> <laughs> so the catharsis of writing is a real thing, is it not? Yeah, it is. And one other that appears a lot is, is mental illness. And, you know, and you talk about like, yeah, I mean, the religious extremism, I grew up in a family where there was no religion at all, really. So I'm not exactly sure where that one comes from. But the mental illness one, I got a little better idea on that one. So. Yeah, got it. <laughs> um, one of the things about you, John, is that you've been described as a gothic noir writer. Some of our listeners may, may not be familiar with what that genre actually entails. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that particular genre. I have no idea. Maybe, maybe you could tell me. I no. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of times it it is less of something that can be defined exactly, and more of a feel. I guess with with got the the gothic tradition, um, a lot of it has to do with with place. I mean, we think about a lot of the the old gothic novels of, of taking place in kind of the scary old haunted houses and and so forth. And a lot of gothic literature, you know, deals with ghosts and and deals with um, the aforementioned mental illness and so forth. Um, I think I'm probably a little more influenced by Southern Gothic, which is, you know, variant of, of Gothic where you've got Flannery O'Connor and William Faulkner and so forth. Um, but very kind of heavily invested in, in place, um, invested in, in a lot of the difficulties within families and then uh, noir, you know, it's hard to know whether noir comes out of the literature tradition or comes out of the film tradition, but I mean, noir means black. So we're talking about something dark. There's not a lot of happy endings in it. Um, and then, you know, the, the mood of, of a noir film and, and a noir story uh, is a mood filled with shadows and, and kind of the unknown. And, and so I guess if you put those two things together, you get the, the gothic noir, which is the, the way my stuff's described. I would say, uh, well, with you talking about that, especially this book is very, there's not a lot of sunlight in it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, like, you know, um, and it, it does center on a specific place and your details are um, so rich that the reader is very much placed into the setting. Like um, we can visualize it as, as we go. Um, I was wondering um, how, when you're creating setting, are you, do you have like a specific place in mind? Do you go do research? Do you go, um, 
pull out those details from from a real place, I guess, especially since you're so like this book is very centered um, in place in Colorado. Yeah, I mean, this one, the, the name of the town in this book is Thompsonville, which is a fictionalized town. And um, but it's sort of a fictionalized version of the town that I live in, Longmont. Uh, I, I think of it as Longmont 20 years ago, if Longmont had been a little farther out on the Eastern Plains. Um, I tend to avoid um, doing a ton of research because I think sometimes it, it can feel a little bit contrived if it if it sounds like you're doing, you know, you're you're, you're you've obviously researched and everybody, wow, what, what what great research this author has done. I, I want it to feel more natural. Um, so I think the you know the town a lot of times represents the the people and and I'm really interested in especially in Eastern Colorado, um, the sense of space and the sense of loneliness that's, that comes with that space. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's the nice thing about being a novelist is, is you can take some things, you can take some things from, from your past and, and things that you know are real. And I do name drop a couple of things from Longmont here, but it, but it really is kind of my own vision and, and feeling of this, of this town and, and the loneliness in this town. So there's other, um, what I would consider classic Gothic, uh, not tropes, but uh, classic uh, elements in Beneath Cruel Waters. Um, one of the things that struck me the most about it is I, I tend to write main characters that are super likable and blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to, to make that a little bit more enriching. But your main character, he's likable, but he's not perfect. He's not really, I don't even know if I'd really want to hang out with him too much, I guess. I don't know. But I love how you've done that. And I just wonder, where do you, how do you delve into character like that and make them so multidimensional as characters, almost like real people stepping into the page? Yeah, I mean, for better or for worse, my characters tend not to be the most sympathetic guys. In fact, I'd probably say in this one, they're more sympathetic than, than usual for me. I, I mean, I, you know, I've written a lot of, of stories from the point of view of, of total psychopaths and so forth. And um, I think a lot of it is just, I find that darkness just more interesting. Um, I think, I think it can become kind of tedious when, when you're reading about, uh, you know, not to say that you can't have really powerful novels with, with likable and sympathetic characters. Of course you can, but just in my own writing style, I've I've felt more energized by writing about people who are who have faults or people who are far from perfect, um, and you know, and that's the way all of us are, right? We, we've all got our our imperfections, and in this book, I tr I tried to have my characters, you know, their their motives were for the most part were fairly pure, you know, in, in what they wanted to have accomplished. They, 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 for the most part, they were, they were trying to do the right thing, but because of, of really difficult circumstances, they ended up not doing the right thing necessarily. And, you know, we, we talked about Gothic and, and noir. I mean, one of the, the big elements in noir, um, in a lot of the noir films is, is kind of your every man who makes one wrong decision and how that one wrong decision can turn into the next wrong decision and, and so forth. And, and so a lot of my characters, I think, make one bad decision and that kind of keeps spiraling on to that. 
it, it makes for a compelling story for sure. Um, I told Brenda, I just got the book yesterday and I've just been obsessively trying to get through it because it's just a page turner. Very well done. Thank you. But like Brenda said, it's very, very dark, um, which personally I love that. But um, when you're deeply involved in creating something so dark, what was the hardest part of creating this novel for you? You know, it's funny. I, I wrote this book years ago. It was called Factory Town and, and it was like, crazy dark like it was it made this one you know it made this one seem like a, a family coming of age novel and um I had this this other author he emailed he was giving a blurb and he emailed me and, and said hey I love the book but I'm but I'm concerned about your mental health he's like I'm just I'm worried about you know where you're where you're going and and the funny thing, I was my mental health was was fine at that time like I you know, for, for me, it's, it really is just the creative process. And even when I'm writing something super dark, um, I don't really go down like a dark spiral myself. If I'm, if I'm in a bad place, I'm just not going to be able to create at all. Um, so I am able to kind of separate the the storyline and the darkness in the story with, with what's going on in, in my own life. And um, yeah, I don't know if it was, if I necessarily planned it to be so unrelentlessly dark, you know, maybe I could have lightened things up in, in certain places, but it's just, it's just the style that I've, that I've written in, that I've always written in much to the chagrin of, of my mother. She's begged me for years. She's like, just give me, just give me one happy ending. And this was the closest I could come. This, this novel here is the closest to a happy ending I could get. Wow. Yeah. No, I've had similar remarks from family. They're like, can't you just write a romance story? And I'm like, well, I tried, but everyone got murdered. <laughs> so yeah, I get I mean, that completely. Romance and crime are kind of kind of the same thing anyway. Yes, they definitely are and definitely can be closer than we want to admit. <laughs> so I, I, I'm sorry, Brenda, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask um, in the darkness, because it's, it's the, the setting um, I guess I was thinking the whole time I was reading just um, the piling on of like generational trauma that's that's going on here and the pulling like the excellent weaving of dare I say fate like the idea of fate but then you're also um, threading us through different point of views and time and that kind of uh, craft, um, I certainly do it, but I find it kind of difficult. It's easy for me to get something wrong, you know, because you're you're telling these different viewpoints, um, and then also um, and then also using time as an element too. Um, did you intend to do that? Um, was it difficult? Did you have to? I mean, are you like a note taker? Like, okay, this happened in this time period and now this has to ha you know, I have to fill in the details in this time period. And then did you have the ending? The ending, the ending was tremendous. Um, it was kind of a j big jaw dropper there. Um, did you have that in mind or, or did it, the story just kind of lead you there? Yeah, I wish I was one of those writers that could just get led to to where I want to be. But yeah, I kind of I, I'm I'm definitely a planner. I, I I know how things are going to turn out. 
Um, there's some surprises along the way, but but generally speaking, I, I you know I outline and and for a novel like this, as, as you mentioned, has a lot of this different time, different characters, and so forth. Um, I, I sort of wrote out beforehand the the timeline of of what happened to each character in, in their own story, and then how that related to the other characters and their stories. And the challenging part for me was all right, you have to figure out what does each character know and when. Uh, how does that relate to the other characters and then be aware of your audience and when you can reveal things to your audience. And so that, that was the, the challenging thing. And I kind of went back on a lot of stuff. One of the thing, biggest things I went back and forth on was uh, the prologue. So the prologue basically, you know, I don't think I'm giving anything away because it's the very beginning, but in the prologue, a, a woman comes and, and kills this man. And then uh, later on that same woman, much older commits suicide. And, and part of me was, oh, I'm, I'm giving away a lot of stuff here in, in, in the prologue, especially if I want this to be a whodunit, I'm already telling everybody who did it right away. Um, but I decided I, I wanted to be that way. And even though I know there's going to be certain elements in the story that people will probably be able to, yeah, I figured that was going to happen. Uh, it's that same idea of Brenda, what you talked about with fate, like there is this sense of fate that we kind of know the characters know and the readers know that it might be heading towards a, a direction and you're sort of hoping maybe it won't go that way, but fate's got a pretty heavy hand and, and pulls pretty hard. Um, so yeah, that's a, I guess a long winded way of answering that question. But the reader has no idea. <laughs> I was like holding the book on, Whoa. I mean, I, I really was astounded because I really thought I had it figured out because that's what I love about these books is that, that as the reader, you're trying to be also the investigator and you're, you're participating in, in the book and you really think you have it figured out, but you just, you don't, you yeah. don't at all. It is. As a writer, I think you, you have to give credit to your reader. And so you have to kind of predict the way they're going to be thinking and give them those things they're going to be thinking and, and lead them in a certain way. And then, and then maybe figure out a way to, to pull out the rug a, a little bit. And I, I never want to do it in, in a cheap way. Like yeah. it's, you know, you can, you can do uh, shocking things and surprising things that there's no way anybody could possibly predict is, is happening. But, uh, but I've always felt that's a little bit cheap. I think you have to, you have to be honest in, in your storytelling. Um, but yeah, I've always been a sucker for for twists. You know, it's just it was devastating. Like my poor mom, my mom heart <laughs> just <laughs> broke. It just broke. And and um, I'm not saying that. And like I love this book, <laughs> but I mean, you you all those feels, all those emotions. Um, I was feeling as I was reading it, and I I was um, especially with the religious side of it. Um, the strictness, the praying, the baptisms and everything from, I would say, my own childhood and everything. I kind of, I think that's why I liked Holt. Like, I kind of felt like I kind of got him. Like, uh, you know, I was like, oh, okay. Like, poor kid. I know how that feels. <laughs> having to pray all the time, having to go to church all the time and having to atone for sin all the time. And um so I understood he was broken, you know, he was, he was a broken um, character, but 
but it wasn't through his own doing initially, you know, all of that, that um, religious trauma and it's a real thing, you know, and everything. Um, it just made it that much more um, convincing. And like, I really, um, I don't even, I just really meshed with the book a lot. And I had to, I had to, I had to take little breaks, but I honestly, I devoured this in two days. Um, it, it, it became an obsession. <laughs> Just so you know, I had a little obsession with Beneath Cruel Waters for two days, and I didn't get much else done. <laughs> I appreciate that. And, you know, it's, it, it's hard, the thing with religion. Um, you know, some, obviously, some people read my books, get upset, and think it's that it's anti-religion, which I don't really think it is. I mean, this is, these are stories about people who are, who in their own desperation use religion in, in this particular way. And, um, and you know, it's, it's really a story about, about extremism and, or about, um, well, I think you put it nicely about that generational trauma and, and religion can play a role into that, but people trying to, trying to find some way out and and religion is is one of those ways that people try to use just like just like alcohol so but i but yeah i never i never meant it to be like a an anti-religion book necessarily i don't think i really felt like it was anti-religion because i understood too that you know his mother was trying to find um peace and redemption you know um through the, what she felt was the most healthy way, you know, and unfortunately it wasn't that healthy, but I think she was just trying to relieve herself of the burden and, you know, and you think, you know, what the burden is initially and, and it, and it gets heavier and heavier. And that's just the way with burdens anyway, you know, um, yeah, I just, I felt like she was trying in her own way to just, she wanted a, a God, somebody, I mean, originally it was a man, she wanted a man to relieve the burden, and then it turned to God, she was just looking for something to lighten the load of all of her stressors and sin and, you know, all these things that she felt she was carrying, so in that way, I don't, I don't feel like it's, disrespectful because i under i understand that viewpoint especially as a as a single mom especially you know like i get that i get some of the struggles she was talking you know or you were writing into the book that she's talking about and facing i i totally i really understood her character i feel like um and it was tragic you know, it's a tragic character, but often that's what a lot of single moms really actually do face in the real world. And I think you wrote the mother um, really, really convincing. Like I, I, you know, I really understood what was, what her drive was. I didn't always agree with it, but I understood it, you know. Oh, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, that was one of the things about the book that really blew my mind is these characters. I, I could understand Holden where he, what he's going through, what his motivations are, and the mom. I think I mostly identified with the mom, just because I'm a mom too, yeah. and some of the struggles that she faced. We just were talking about the struggles we're having right now, protecting our kids from mental illness, and my 
daughters have faced a very horrific thing where one of their friends recently was murdered uh. um, by a romantic interest sort of thing. And I'm, so I've had to have these discussions with my 15-year-old twins, which is just, it's been really a rough week. <laughs> and so we're just talking about that and talking about the burdens that moms carry and the fact that, you know, I could just empathize with the mom in this book of all these things that she's had to carry in silence for so long. And as women, that's what we do. You've masterfully nailed those characters, John. You've done just a masterful job. Yeah. Well, I mean, not to get into politics, but yeah, I mean, you've got the Supreme Court is asking you to care even more. You know, it's like, yes, sir. So. And not to get on my soapbox, but now they're going after indigenous sovereignty. Just uh, be on notice that I'm watching. <laughs> Um, so one of the things I was reading up about you, not that I'm stalking you or anything. Okay. I, I enjoy stalkers, honestly. Anyways, uh, I was reading an article about you and I know that the disassembled man was already been adopted and it's slated to begin filming at some point, which will be exciting. I'm going to watch for that. But I also read that Beneath Cruel Waters is also garnering some attention from movie makers, which I can absolutely see why. I think it would make a fabulous film. And I know that you've written a screenplay that won an award-winning screenplay. Um, and I'm just, as a writer, I've never taken, tried to write a screenplay, but it's always in the back of my mind where I have some ideas about that. And I'm just curious as, an, as a writer, what are the main obstacles you find in, or are there any between writing novels and screenplays? How different or similar are those two things? I mean, they are two totally different art forms and I don't I don't feel like I'm a great screenwriter like I feel like I'm just a novice who's just doing my best I can and I'm and when you're doing it with your own story like your own novel I think it's a little bit easier than just starting and doing your own uh, a straight original adapt, uh, adaptation of something but um, you know the biggest thing as far as adapting your own novels is you just you can't include everything I mean a, a screenplay is a lot shorter and so, you, so it's figuring out what to leave in, what to leave out. Um, it's also being aware of, I mean, in a screenplay, really everything is, is has to be visual. So um, you don't get to get inside people's head, which as, as authors, we spend a lot of time, you know, getting in, getting in our characters' heads and so forth. And in screenplays, you can't do that. Uh, really focusing on, on making sure the, the dialogue is crisp and, um, and then a lot of times cutting dialogue. So you, there's, you, you don't want to have monologues too often in movies. And so it, it has to be a little bit quicker. So those are all things I'm learning. And I'm, I'm not a great screenwriter by, by any stretch. I'm really just like, I'm just relying on my, the story itself, the novel itself, and, and doing some cutting and pasting there and, and putting it in the right format. Um, but yeah, The Disassembled Man, that was the first book I wrote a long, or the first book that got published a long, long time ago. And it, it was adapted originally in, uh, it's probably been like 13 years ago that it was first adapted. And it's just been moved around from producer to producer to director to director. And we've had some some talent attached to it. And, and now we're kind of like probably the closest we've been that we've got some financing that's been committed, but these are all circular thing. The financing is committed, assuming that you get this particular actor aboard and so forth. So, you know, it, to me, it just seems like a miracle anytime any of these things actually happen, but I'm not giving up hope. And then um, 
with Beneath Cruel Waters, you know, much more just at the beginning where just some, some people are reading it and showing interest, but there's not a screenplay written for it yet. So that would be more at the beginning of that game. Um, I, I've learned being around this, the movie industry for, for a while now that I'm assuming nothing is going to happen. And, and, uh, and if it does, I'll be really happy, but, but uh, I'll, I'll stick to being a novelist for, for now. I'll be extremely happy if they make this into a movie. It 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 screams movie. I'm like it's, it's got to be seen by everyone. <laughs> it's just so good, Thank so you. good. I don't know anything about the movie industry, and um, that's why I was asking. I'm just curious. How does that? How does that happen? <laughs> it's, it's probably best not to know. I mean, it's it's oh. it's like the the whole hot dog thing, right? It's just it's better not to know how how they're made. It's better just to go and enjoy the movies, but. Yeah, I mean, the hard thing you deal with so much is, and, and, you know, these are all, for the most part, these are people, for the most part, people who are well-meaning as well, but um, but everyone is also self-serving, you know, and I'm not blaming them for being self-serving, but everyone's, you know, trying to get it in for themselves. So when you have a lot of self-serving interest trying to connect on something, I mean, when you're writing a novel, it's just you, you know, you, you, you're the one who makes all the choices. And then, yeah, there's the obstacle of trying to get it published, but for the actual product, it's a lot simpler. Whereas with a movie, it's, you know, well, we got to get this director and this actor and this producer and, and this location. And so it's just, it's difficult. It sounds like it. Like I said, I don't know anything about it. So if anybody ever approached me to adopt anything, I'd probably get completely taken advantage of. And um, yeah, so I, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse, I guess, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's something I'm just, I was just curious because, you know, I still have a holdout hope that Netflix will call me tomorrow and say, hey. <laughs> you never know. They're looking, they're always looking for content. So that'd be nice. I had a question real quick too, and I meant to ask it earlier. And yes, it's thundering, and my dog is trying to be on my lap, and she's 116 pounds. So I'm trying to prevent that from happening. So I'm not, she's here. <laughs> um, Orphelia, she's she's an interesting character of the time. You use a lot of um, music references to place us with her. Um, you know, um, old school '80s. You know, um, punk, and um, and she's. We get to eventually see like the. Um, the the breaking, I guess, of her mind and the things. And you touch on topics such as um, pregnancy and abortion um, with her character because um, she is placed in a very um, delicate, I guess you could almost say dangerous position for her age. And, um, and then... We, I won't say why, but we, we see her, her have this major break. Um, and I really, her character was also uh, a tragedy. Um, through, well, obviously it's, it's throughout the book. Um, you just don't always see all the evidence of it. And I was wondering, um, 
where did the inspiration for her character like where where did you come up with all the aspects and details of her character um i find the closeness between her and Holt being kids you know just being children um and it, you know you get to see parts of that and that makes it even more tragic for the ending um i just found her character all of them very compelling but um but her character and the trajectory of it um was very um it's it stuck with me i, I can't not stop thinking of orphelia is she at all like did you come up with some of some of her because she shares some of the same aspects i guess you could say of hamlet's orphelia and i don't know if you even thought of that when you were writing um just having bigger people writing out her fate without being able to speak to it you know or change it i wish i had thought of that one <laughs> i the name itself was actually, I just have a, a, a girl that I went to junior high with, um, and I always liked her name. I always liked the name Ophelia. I always thought it was a beautiful name. Um, and then as far as the, the character herself, she, you know, I don't do autobiographical stuff in my writing, but of all the characters, I would say I identified with her the most of, of any of my characters. Um, but, you know, I've, I've taught high school for for 20 years or whatever, and and I think she became a little bit of a composite of of some of the girls that I've that I've taught, and and you know somebody who's you know when you're you're that age, you're you're trying to find yourself, you're trying to figure out who you are, you're trying to define yourself through a lot of times through music and and through the clothes that you wear, um, you're trying to find where you stand in this world and and where you stand in relation to your family and and to your friends and and. You're getting pushed in all sorts of, of different ways and you haven't totally figured out yourself yet. And, um, and so I have a, a lot of, of sympathy and empathy for, for Ophelia and her character. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of alluded to the, 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 you know, my mom's a psychologist. So I think I, I'm aware of, of some of the struggles that people face. I've, I've dealt with my own you know, um, mental health issues and, and so forth. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I like what both you said as far as, you know, the, well, everybody in this story carries a lot of burdens, but I think, I think ultimately the, the woman and, and Ophelia in particular might carry the most. Um, and she's carrying the trauma and in a, in a way is, is trying to hold that trauma silently for, for everybody in her family. We, we we talk about that a lot. How um, women carry their pain and trauma in silence because we don't want to inconvenience anyone or make anyone else feel bad. And I think that when that's one thing that really touched me when I was reading this book because I could so relate to that. Just as the mom, you try to keep. There's a lot of things you keep to yourself, right? Yeah. And it can become a crushing burden at times. And so if there was a lot of empathy for all the characters. You just you didn't. A masterful job of like I said it felt like just people walking into the story it didn't feel like characters and even Brenda kind of referred to them almost as actual living humans <laughs> as we're talking about the different things that they did almost excluding you as the author 
<laughs> but that's masterfully done. You did a great job. It's fantastic. I feel embarrassed, you guys, saying all these nice things. Maybe you could just say a little bit more, though. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting used to it. Yeah. Well, we want to be invited to the movie premiere. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to ask you about Beneath Cruel Waters is what is your maybe, I don't know, favorite's the right word, but what was your your most liked element of the story that you really, as a writer, you know, there's certain things that you write in a story that you really want to convey to your readers. And what was that for you with this book? Oh, I don't know. I mean, when you're, when you write a story, I was, I guess I was trying to combine um, certain elements of, of, uh, not really thrillers, but but books that have that are twisty, that are that are page turners. But I, I never wanted it to be cheap. I wanted there I wanted there to be some heart behind the story, and and I hope that I succeeded with that. I I, I think as a writer, I spent a lot of time um, working on on some of the lyricism of of the the sense of place of of making you um, feel a certain mood that that hopefully is the same mood that I was feeling when I wrote it. So, you know, some of my favorite scenes are, are scenes with, with only one person, you know, where there's just, just, just one person going to the landscape and, and again, without giving things away of, of that, you know, tremendous sense of loneliness, the, the out in the plains and, and being isolated from, from everybody. And, and, you know, not to say that this, I don't mean for this book just to depress everybody, but I, but I do think, you know, I think anytime you read something and it kind of reminds you of your own humanity, then that's a, a pretty good thing. Um, and let's be, let's be honest is that humanity is, is full of, it's full of pain. It's full of suffering. And, um, and, and hopefully there was, that was conveyed in a way that was done. I keep repeating this, but it was done in a way that that's not cheap. And so that, that's my hope for what readers get out of it. I think you hit the nail on the head with it. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. It's very, I can't, I can't tell you how, like the whole twists and turns did not feel like you were trying to trick me. Um, it, you know how you go through life and all of a sudden something blindsides you and you're like, oh my gosh, that's how I felt. Like, I felt like I was just living life with these people and these different things were happening and I'm, it wasn't cheap. It wasn't tricky. And it definitely pulled me in emotionally, which is um, hard for me to get into books sometimes like that. Just, you know, because as a, as a writer, you're constantly, I don't know if you guys do this, but I'm reading really critically and I'm like making notes about characters and junk like that. I didn't do that with this book. I just read it for pure pleasure and got totally sucked right in, right in. I fell asleep with the book on my chest last night because I was trying to get through and just talked out finally, but I uh, will finish that probably today, um, knowing me. Uh, thank you. No, you did a great job. The characters are, like I said, they, the characters really made the story for me, for sure. So, John, one thing we like to do with all of our guests is have them share a piece of writing with us, with our listeners. Um, we were hoping that you would be willing to do that today. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm going to uh, just read a section from Beneath Cruel Waters and and... You know, the only background to know is is from the very beginning of the story. Um, the main character Holt, his mother has committed suicide, and and he has gone back into town um, for her funeral. He hasn't been back into his hometown in in a long time, 
and he's he spends his first night back just kind of wandering around the his childhood house and and ends up in her room. So that's where this scene takes place. And I'll try to do it without my reading glasses. So. Holt pushed open the door of his mother's room. He stood there for some time, heart quickening, hands trembling. A desk light was still on, creating strange shadows on the floor. He shoved his hands into his back pockets, his own temporary straitjacket, and then he stepped forward. Inside her room, everything was neat and in order. This is what happens when you're planning on killing yourself, Holt thought. The bed was neatly made, just like in Ophelia's room. Several magazines, as well as a leather-bound Bible, were, were stacked tidily on the nightstand. On the bookshelf were dozens of children's books and nearly as many workbooks, cursive, multiplication, geography. Several religious and pastoral paintings hung from the wall, as well as a corkboard with a pair of drawings her students had made for her, quick and messy, probably done at the behest of a parent in order to get in Miss Davidson's good graces. Still, they must have meant something to her. Thanks for being such a good teacher, one of them said, with a drawing of a tall stick figure in a square dress, holding the hand of a small stick figure, also in a square dress. Have a Merry Christmas, Miss Davidson, said the other, below which was a rudimentary drawing of a Christmas tree with a star on top, but no ornaments. Three decades of teaching, and that's what she had to show for it. Two drawings. To Holt, it was more pathetic than endearing. The room smelled faintly of tobacco. Had she taken up smoking, Holt wondered, and mothballs. At the foot of the bed, there was a wooden chest. He opened it, and inside were a dozen or more sweaters folded neatly. She was always cold, his mother, even in the summer months. When he would go running around outside with a t-shirt and shorts, she would be wearing slacks and a sweater. A problem with her circulation, she had told him. He let the wooden cover of the box slam close and then strode over to his mother's desk where a single rose wilted in a narrow vase. He pulled out the chair and sat down. He rubbed his temples with his fingers. A few minutes passed and then he pulled open one of the drawers, feeling a pang of guilt for rifling through his mother's personal belongings. The desk was filled with the nostalgia of the age, postcards and letters and ticket stubs and faded photographs, her own worthless souvenirs. Holt sat at the desk, flipping through those souvenirs for a long time. He didn't know what to feel. Outside the sky darkened and he could hear ghostly violin music playing somewhere. A cool breeze blew through the open window and one of the blank postcards, greetings from Estes Park, slipped off the desk and fluttered to the floor. He bent down to pick it up and was about to return it to the drawer when something caught his attention. Beneath the desk, he noticed that a single floorboard was ajar, barely jutting above the floor. He could have left it alone. It was an old house after all, but he was curious. He got onto his hands and his knees and began pulling at the edge of the board. It didn't come up right away, but after straining for a while, the board did pop out, a single nail spinning on the floor next to him. Breathing deeply, he got down on his stomach and looked in the gap where the floorboard used to be. And that's when he saw the revolver, and next to that, a box of some sort. His heart began to pound. He tried reaching toward the gun, toward the box, but the gap in the boards was too narrow. He stuck his hand beneath another board and tried yanking it out too, but this one wouldn't budge. He needed a pry bar or a hammer. He glanced around the room, but didn't see anything that would help. 
cursing under his breath. He rose to his feet and hurried to the hallway to the back door, which opened to the garage. His mother hadn't organized the garage the way she'd organized her room, and the overhead light was dim, so it took several minutes of searching before he found an old, rusted claw hammer resting on top of a blue metal toolbox. He gripped the hammer, pushed back into the house, and returned to his mother's room. He got back on the ground and began yanking at the board. It didn't come out cleanly, and so he pounded it with a hammer, causing it to splinter. Perspiration dripped down his temples, and his hands ached, but eventually he was able to remove enough of the board to get at the revolver, get at the box. The gun was a small Smith & Wesson. He opened the chamber. Three bullets were inside. He placed the revolver on the ground next to him and picked up the box. It was made of cheap pasteboard and it was about half the size of a shoebox. On the top was a drawing of a ballerina spinning through the sky, surrounded by purple stars and pink clouds, the sides were decorated with flowers and suns and ballet shoes. Buried beneath the floor for who knows how long, the pasteboard box had begun to rock and the drawings had begun to fade. Holt sat cross-legged on the floor and with trembling hands snapped open the miniature metal latch. A tiny ballerina popped up from her springs ready to dance, heels together, one arm above her head. Behind the ballerina was a narrow oval mirror and in front of her was a small compartment covered with a pink cloth. Holt wound the music box. He watched wide-eyed as the ballerina performed a jerky pirouette while Beethoven's furlis played, muted and warped. When the music slowed and the ballerina stopped, he rewound the box and watched the performance again and another time still. He felt like crying. He breathed deeply and stared at where the cloth flap concealed the compartment. Out of curiosity, he lifted it. He was surprised to see that underneath was an envelope, sealed but not stamped. Instead of an address, there were five words written in red ink that he recognized to be in his mother's handwriting. Each little world must suffer. The hell? Holt whispered. He removed the envelope from the box and unsealed it. Inside the envelope was a letter yellowed with age. As Holt read it, he was worried that it might crumble in his hands. It was written in thin blue ink and the handwriting was beautiful. My love, I'm not a poet, but I know these things to be true. A heart can only ache so much until it ruptures. Eyes can only cry so much until they're blinded. A soul can only long so much until it withers. I wonder, do you have any idea how much I wanna tell the world about us, about how I feel about you? Any idea how much I wanna stand on rooftops and shout at the top of my lungs? But I know that the world would not allow it because they wouldn't understand because they mistake love for sinfulness. And so I will wait in quiet, in the darkness of my room. But know that you are the first thing I think of when I open my eyes in the morning. You're the last thing I think of when I close them at night. And you are all that I dream of as the sky stays dark. I know that your heart aches as much as mine. Just know that someday we'll be together, this I promise you. Someday I'll take you far from this pathetic little town and we'll never look back. I love you. I love you more than you know. There was no signature. Holt read the letter a few times, trying to figure out who could have written it, but he came up empty. He recalled a few men coming to the house when he was very young, but he couldn't remember their names or faces. And once his mother was under the spell of the Lord, he couldn't recall her going out on even a single date. Was it possible that she had a secret love, 
someone who sent her love letters, someone who dreamed only of her. Holt went to the place, went to place the letter back in the envelope, deciding that maybe a secret love should remain just that. But as he reopened the envelope, he realized there was something else inside, an old Polaroid photograph. He removed the photograph and held it in front of him. A gasp escaped from his mouth. It was an image of a man, body angled grotesquely against a wall, mouth open, eyes bulging. Blood covered his shirt and the floor beneath. Holt was pretty sure that he was dead. And that's, that's the reading. That's awesome. That I just, like I said, I just read that yesterday. So that's still, now that whole scene is still fresh in my mind. And now knowing a little bit further how things go, I'm, I'm shook. <laughs> I'm listening to you read that going, oh my God. I see it. Oh, oh. But yeah, your twist came out of nowhere. And like I said, a jaw dropped. I was just like, no way, no way. But now um, it was masterfully done, John. It was such good storytelling, such solid storytelling. Thank you. Um, excellent job. I'm just thrilled. Good job. I hope uh, those that are listening to this know that we aren't kidding. Go out and buy the book Beneath Cruel Waters by John Bassoff because you won't be sorry. It'll be like, I don't know. It's It's such a strange, like it's so written with such heart and mm -hmm. um that it feels familiar but in a way the writing is is so the pace everything is so perfectly done that it um it unfolds in your brain like a movie matter of fact you'll enjoy this probably more than most movies you're watching today um and it's one of those books it's very rare i'm usually i'll read something and i'll pause and I'll come back to it in a couple of days. But this book, I couldn't put down. I just couldn't. I, I read it. Um, I read it for <laughs> two days straight till I was done. Because I had to know. I had to know how it ended. And um, yeah, definitely. I couldn't recommend it more. It is very, very, very well done. We had to get on this Zoom call an hour before we talked to you. Just because we wanted to unpack. <laughs> yeah. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. And we don't usually normally do that. I mean, we will chit chat a little bit about the author's work or some things we've read or whatever and have discussion, but we needed to literally unpack some of the things. So it's, it's, it's timely. It's, it's so weird. It's, it's definitely, it's moving. Like it's very dark, but it's very moving. And um, like I said, it's masterful. It's amazing. Thank you. And so John, what's next for you? You got another novel in the works? or not quite yet so yeah, i mean i've got i've got one finished um that's uh yeah it's called the memory ward it's being i hope i'm hopeful that blackstone who did this one is going to take on memory ward as well but i have to wait and see they want they want to see how sales do with beneath crow waters which is understandably so uh it's uh this next one is uh got some like science fiction it's not a science fiction novel it's got some science fiction elements it's different than anything i've done before it's a lot different than beneath crow waters for better or for worse it's one of those things you finish a book a couple people have read it you lose all objectivity i have no idea if it's any good or not i hope it is i i felt like it was good when i finished it but but we'll see and then yeah and then i'm, I'm always working on something so i've got another book that i'm working on right now and and we'll see what comes of that one too 
That's great. And where can our listeners find you and your books and all information about you? Um, you know, the easiest way is just over on johnbassoff.com. Uh, my first name is J-O-N, last name B-A-S-S-O-F-F. Um, and then, you know, usual places. You can get books at at Amazon. Beneath Crow Waters is in in a lot of stores, a lot of Barnes and Nobles and so forth. If you if you want to go to the physical store. Um, and then, you know, obviously better if you can get it at the independent stores. Absolutely. We'll put links to all of those down in the show notes for those of you who are looking for this book. And you should be looking for it because you will not be disappointed at all. Uh, Brenda, you got anything else for John? Just working on trying to find a place for us to read our books here in good old New Orleans. Yeah, yeah, that would try and try and try and get Gambino and yeah, it'd be a fun party. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this book was wonderful. I thank you for sending it. Well, thanks for reading. Thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun talking to both of you. Yeah, fun talking to you too, John. And hopefully. Brenda can get that set up in New Orleans and maybe we can redo another reading here in Denver one where COVID doesn't hijack me because I'd love to read with you. I think it'd be super fun. That'd be great. Yeah. So we'll try to, we'll try to make that happen at some point. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us on The Burial Plot. We hope that you've enjoyed our chat with John Basoff. His new novel, Beneath Crew Waters, is available now. Go get it. Um, perhaps you can catch him in a live reading sometimes around town. I'm sure he's got plenty going on there. It's a book that will stay with you for a long time, listeners, and you will not be disappointed. So go get that book. And until next time, listeners, stay above ground. <laughs>